0: Hello and welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Red Production Company founder Nicola Schindler about her new Key Street Productions venture with ITV Studios. And Globo Head of International Business Rafael Correa Neto on the Brazilian TV Providers Overseas Partnership Plans for 2021. After establishing Red Production Company as one of the foremost drama producers in the UK, with series including Happy Valley and Years and Years, Nicola Schindler announced her departure from the Studio Canal-backed business last year. Now set up at ITV Studios with her new label, Manchester-based Key Street Productions, she spoke with Michael Pickard about her ambitions for a wide-ranging and diverse slate and her plans to work with new talent while also building on relationships with key writers like Russell T Davies and Harlan Coben. Schindler also talked about two of her latest projects, ITV's Finding Alice and Davies' new Channel 4 drama, It's a Sin.
1: You announced that you were leaving Red at the end of last year and and joining with ITV Studios and we've been, I guess, eagerly anticipating (laughs) what your next move might be uh, in terms of the company. What's in the name? Tell us about Key Street and uh, where did that come from?
2: I was trying to think of something that meant something to me that was a place that was recognisably Manchester that you know had been instructive in my career and um, my first full job as a script editor I worked on Cracker for Granada based in Key Street in Manchester and it was such a brilliant experience and it was such an amazing building and I felt from the outset that the building had something about it that made it a really creative place to work you know there were pictures on the wall of all this incredible talent from you know Jack Rosenthal to Elsie Tanner you know just just people and places and and things happening in a building so it always stayed with me as as a an atmosphere that I wanted to. create.
1: And I guess you know since you you founded Red in in 98 and it's really become one of the I guess the cornerstones of the UK production scene I I would say with household names shows that you know a lot of people would remember I mean what can you tell us just about the decision to leave and, and you know start afresh really it's described you've described it as a kind of new chapter what was it about that starting again?
2: It felt like the right time for me to to set up and to start a new challenge like I said I've been at Red for over 20 years loved every minute of it loved every one of those shows but just the idea of being able to start with new partners. I was really excited by what ITV Studios had to offer by working closely with them. That felt really interesting. And then just at the idea of setting up a new development slate, working with some of the writers that I work with already, but lots of new voices as well. Working alongside new talent in Manchester is is really exciting. It felt like the right time. I didn't <laughs> know there would be a global pandemic.
1: <laughs> I mean, and just, you know, in terms of working with, with ITV, I mean, your key street is a, is a label within ITV. It's not a first look deal or an overall deal or anything like that. So what what was the appeal of, of being within the, the organisation as an insider rather than just having a, a close link, perhaps?
2: It's exactly what you just said. It's being an insider and, and being properly part of an organisation. So I, I really like the outlook of ITV Studios. I talked a lot with Julian Bellamy recently who you know runs it and I like his attitude towards how drama should be. The ambition they've got there is really interesting. The kind of risk taking that, that they're prepared to do and... their their faith in me was really inspiring and Mm. I feel very lucky to have them behind me
1: and and as you said you know it's it's not easy to do much in a, a in a pandemic let alone set up a new production company so what have the steps been that you've taken thus far to, to kind of establish yourself?
2: Well, I've only been going since January, so it's not long. Oh, well. I have got a few really interesting, great young people coming to join me um, in February. So that'll be exciting. Some some development team who you know whose voices really inspired me, whose opinions on different scripts was really interesting. So uh, that's, uh, so far I've done that and I have been reading absolutely everything that comes across my desk. And I've been talking to various writers reading a lot of books working with the book scouts just everything that everyone else is doing in development really mm-hmm. I am also in production still on some red projects which I'm lucky enough to stay on so you know I'm I'm not totally thrown into the development world
1: <laughs> I mean what what would you say will define key street in terms of pro- projects and, and your relationships that will differentiate you from your work at red
2: you know I'm not going to spend too much time getting hung up on the idea of striking a new tone or <laughs> making sure that it feels very different from red it's going to feel very contemporary so obviously the times are changing and and therefore it'd be different from the work that I've done at red but ultimately what I want to do is work with fantastic writers other fantastic talent whether it's directors on-screen talent at developing really strong stories which kind of provoke people into thinking about things are incredibly entertaining always have a sense of humor about them and are going to stand out from what's out there already that's my aim whether it feels different from red or not I'm just not going to get hung up on
1: and you know people will know from um, you know your relationships that you, you've said you've, you've got close relationships with a lot of writers and it's notable that a lot of the writers come back to you at Red and, and obviously you'll, you'll be working with again in the future Russell T Davies for example you've done eight ten shows together so yeah. I mean, what, what is it about you as a producer that you know means that writers want to come back to you how what's your kind of approach
2: well I guess you'd have to ask them why they come back but what I try <laughs> and do is make sure that I am putting their voice and what they wanted the work to be right at the centre of everything so every production decision every casting decision where we, we even which broadcaster we approach is all cut, stems from what idea they want to tell and what they want to write so then it gives them that kind of freedom of knowing that we're all on the same path and we all want the same thing from them i think you know i have to work as hard as they work so and i have to deliver their baby which is something really precious to most writers so therefore every single decision about who we put in place how we make something from you know the smallest location to who's directing it, so it key to the writer's voice. You put the writer's voice right at the centre of it and think who would work with that. It doesn't lessen the work of, th- of directors or of actors but it just means that everyone is working towards the same goal and I and I think that once you do that and once people see that that you have their interests at heart, while trying to make them better sometimes, so it's not that you just say you're brilliant and I walk away, you you really give a lot of input as well mm-hmm. then I, I think that's why people want to try again.
1: Are you, are you kind of an advocate of um, I guess the US sort of show running model where with writers becoming producers and, and having that hands-on you know, approach all the way through or how do you feel about that role coming into British TV more?
2: Yeah, I have always put the writer at the centre of the process so I'm really happy for writers to be producers. I think we should be listening to the writers' voices. I think the writers do have a really good opinion as to what clothes you know, the characters should be wearing uh, as to where, uh, where they live what their house looks like. I'm not saying that it's the same model as America and that they're showrunners and that they have the final decision because I think my job as well is to balance everyone's opinion so to make sure if we've employed a director who's really good which we only employ really good directors then you have to make sure their voice is heard as well so for me it's about balancing everyone's voice rather than having one dominant voice mm-hmm. sometimes the writer's voice is just so obviously right that there's no other alternative but that yes they need to be involved in every single part of the process
1: and so you know considering the last 12 months um of the pandemic that we've been in and hopefully working our way through at the moment i mean as, as a new producer starting a new company what are the challenges that you're facing? you know, in, in this new world that, I guess, producers find themselves working in?
2: Well, I mean, the biggest challenge for me is the same as for everyone else, which is meet, not, not being able to meet people in person. Mm. So, you know, this is great. Zooming's great. Uh, meeting people online is is absolutely fine. But nothing replaces that time in the office when you're having a casual chat and you suddenly realise that casual chat is a brilliant idea. Or where someone, you know, a writer will walk past a, a location board that a director's stuck up and they'll say, oh, it can't be that location because here's what happens through three episodes down the line, you know, all that, just that, that kind of interaction that, that I think proper creative gold dust comes from that I miss so much. I miss meeting writers for the first time in person, because I think again, just the casual chit chat that you have around the proper meeting is you know, sometimes brings up the best ideas. And I've never actually met any of my new development team in person, which is just very, very bizarre. I've met them obviously online a few times, but not (laughs) in person. And that's strange.
1: I mean, and do you foresee many of the, I guess, in physical production measures that are in place at the moment? Do you foresee... Things sticking around, or will productions go back to how they were pre-pandemic? How do you think thing, things will work? I think it'll
2: be a long time till it's exactly back to how it used to be. But I, I hope slowly that we can take some of the restrictions out and relieve the pressure on the production teams who are just doing such a miraculous job. And you know, both in terms of the time that COVID's taking the extra time and the extra measures around it, I hope that we'll slowly go back to normal. I don't think it'll happen overnight.
1: Uh, at ITV, obviously, they've got a huge stable of of other producers around the world what are your aspirations perhaps of of working on international series with writers or directors from all around the world through perhaps your relationships that you'll build at ITV?
2: Um, I don't know necessarily whether my international ambitions will come from that from those meetings but I think that they are there to back bigger big projects so you know that could be exciting. I've always tried to um, develop projects which even though they are often very UK based they have an international focus now whether that's just because there's a universal theme in them or there's a story that appeals to everyone it doesn't mean that you have to travel around the world and film things in different countries just about a, an approach I think that makes something sell well abroad.
1: And, and so you mentioned obviously you've still got projects with Red that you're working on and, yep. and two of them are, are kind of out and, and coming out now. We've So we've got Finding Alice which launched on ITV recently and then, and then It's a Sin is launching on Channel 4. I mean just tell us first about Finding Alice and that's an interesting story I, I feel because Keely Hawes who's the star, she's also an EP she's also the co-creator. Tell us a bit about working with her and, and on that project and how that came about.
2: Um, I had met Keely just to talk about ideas generally and got on very well and I had worked with one of the co-writers which who's Roger Goldby before so they came to me with an idea that they they had the three of them were Simon and I as well had come up with while they were working the Dorals which was to to look at a woman who experiences a, a sudden death of a, a partner really abruptly and to approach that with a sense of warmth and a sense of humor but also to look at grief rather than to look at death which television does so many times and I was just totally entranced they were telling me and then as soon as they started writing it just the tone I think is so special because it makes you cry and laugh in the same scene. Their story, but it's not about a genre story. It's about people, and and so it, just that relationship was really interesting from the off.
1: And what's it like? I guess we're seeing more actors becoming EPs on the shows they star in. What's it like having that relationship with the, the lead actor behind the scenes?
2: I think it's great because the more people who are committed to a production, the more people who want to make it the best that it can be, then the better it is for the show. So when an actor understands the difficult decisions that are made and why they're made and why they're being asked to do what they're doing that day then they you know muck in as much as everyone else I think you know Keely is one of those actresses anyway who just is brilliant to have on set is so professional is so clever so you know she's a proper producer on this she had so many ideas she was there for every single decision she myself Simon and Roger were the execs equally and it's great to have that all the way through
1: and then it's a sin I mean we touched on your relationship with Russell T Davis before but I mean tell us a bit about you know working him on on his latest show why was that something you wanted to reconnect on and and just tell us a bit about the story as
2: well. So It's a Sin, I think, is an extraordinary story told in a very special way by Russell. It's the story of four boys and a young woman in the 80s, starting in the early 80s, going through to the 90s, and the impact of the AIDS, HIV virus on them and their lives and their friendships and their world. It's really shocking that we've never told this story in a UK context before on television. And this is just a massive piece from Russell because he introduces these characters who makes you fall madly in love with they're brilliant they're funny the stories they get up to the the things that happen are just so entertaining and you are then haunted by this terrible disease which impacts on their lives in a way that is horribly prophetic now it wasn't when we started making it at all but you know obviously people will be able to understand it a bit more I think that, that you know there's a disease that no one knows where it's coming from and no one quite knows how to control it the reaction to HIV was very different from the reaction to COVID and that's something we explore and that's it what he's brilliant at writing. The idea that this, you know, this was a minority group who were treated really appallingly many times over the 10 years that we, we watched the drama but that they had this resilience which is just pure Russell and this humour
1: people uh, might have seen episode one as a, a C21 premiere during Content London last year and I uh, certainly am looking forward to seeing the, the rest of the series tell us a bit about filming those shows were they filmed during the pandemic and and how have you taken steps you know to film shows during the, the, the last uh, few years It's
2: a Sin It's a Sin was um, filmed before the pandemic we finished in January so all our post has been remote we You know, a few times when lockdowns eased, and when we've been in certain tiers, we've been able to be in rooms socially distanced, looking at edits and looking at uh, sound edits. But there's been very little contact. Really, we've done most of it remotely. But thank God we got through that shoot. Um, Finding Alice. Unfortunately, we were a few weeks into the second block when the first lockdown happened, and we filmed right up until the last day we were allowed at the end of March, and then picked up again in September with very strict rules. We looked at the script. We saw if there were any scenes that we could make more, you know, easier for the production crew. It was very hard for them all to to have to follow those regulations and still shoot a drama. I'm hoping it doesn't show on screen at all. And that's my aim. And now I'm I'm in the middle of another shoot with a Red production, which we have got one. We started in March. It was meant to start in March. And we have one more day's filming after today. So can't wait for that to be completed so we can start editing it and finally get it on screen.
1: Can you tell us then what that is and what other shows are
2: you just working on? That's called Ridley Road uh, by Sarah Soleimani. It's for BBC One and for Masterpiece in America. Um, it's an amazing story about a, a, a young woman in 1962 who goes undercover with a fascist organisation, which is based in the reality, and helps to bring that organisation down.
1: Great. And, and what else are you working on then that we'll see? I'm
2: starting filming a new Harlan Coben project for Netflix in a few weeks called Stay Close, which is also something that's fantastically exciting. I love working with him and with Danny Brockhurst on those projects. And then i am also got one more uh, red project, which is called No Return, which Danny has written as well, which is a four part of the ITV starring Sheridan Smith, which is totally different from all those other projects.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's great that, you know, obviously, yeah, other writers that you work with before, Harlan and, and Danny, and, and on those Netflix series, they have a special kind of writing partnership, don't they? I mean, can you tell us a bit about how they work together? Because obviously a lot of the stuff, the story-wise anyway, comes from, from Harlan or his books perhaps, and, and Danny kind of takes that and runs with it. So what's that kind of partnership like?
2: They are brilliant together. It's it's them, me, and um, a, a brilliant exec called Richard Fee. And we've all worked on all of Harlan's together and Harlan is fantastic at providing these massive stories that have so many twists and turns and then Danny like interrogates them and brings them to the television with you know he manages to capture the warmth of humans, uh, for Harlan's writing the humour and the key thing is that we, that we keep the tension going and keep the thriller element going so working with Richard really closely in he works with Harlan ahead of us making sure that there's enough story that, that, that the twists and turns are going to land on television it's just a massive collaborative affair with people who i'm very fond of so fortunately it works very well arlen and danny are very funny together because they're both complementary of and very critical of each other's work the whole time
1: and and just you know back to to key street i mean just what are your development plans what can you tell us about you know what kind of slate you might have is it you're going to have lots of projects is it going to be very bespoke one or two projects and how soon might we see you know you going into production
2: well if i had my way i'd be in production you know next month so you know unfortunately i don't but uh, yeah i know there's lots of things that i want to do and that I want to explore. Um, I'm not going to restrict myself to a couple of projects. I think there's so much choice out there for broadcasters. You have to make sure that you are looking everywhere for different voices, for new voices. I want to make sure it's a really diverse slate, and I mean that in every sense of the word. I think you know, all there's places in the UK that just aren't represented on screen anywhere in the UK. I want to make sure those voices are on air. Um, I, I can't wait to get going with these this development team and see what they bring to the mix as well. So I'm not going to edit myself in advance. Except to say it has to be exceptional. That's all. It has to be really good. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, it's not worth us carrying on. And and that isn't always the case. But I think because television is so good at the moment, and because, like I said, there's so many great writers and so many good production companies, I have to make sure that we are a centre of excellence.
0: Nicola Schindler from Key Street Productions. Rafael Correa Neto is the head of international business at Globo, Brazil's leading TV provider. The company has been busy transitioning its business from linear to streaming in recent years to stay competitive with overseas players like Netflix entering its territory, but also to connect with Brazilians in the US and elsewhere. He spoke to Oli Hammett, about this strategy and how the company remains committed to licensing high-quality drama to partners around the world, as well as exploring deeper relations with international streamers in 2021 as a means of further expanding its reach.
3: What's global's international strategy going into 2021? I think we are all going through
4: uh, uh, in the needs of change or to adapt more than change uh, the strategy as the, as the as the world changes. Right in the in the, in the recent years, we've 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 expanded our creative and production capabilities into high-end drama series, both for our broadcast business in Brazil and for our OTT business in Brazil, evolving into a multi-genre content producer and distributor. Right. So the way we see ourselves is potentially becoming a strategic content partner for uh, channels, platforms uh, and so forth, bringing all this uh, uh, slate of content that I mentioned, telenovelas uh, series, but also the content uh, from now on, the content that we produce for our cable networks in Brazil, whether it's kids content, whether it's lifestyle content, whether it's sports lifestyles uh, content so there is a there is much more content to to be presented and and, and and let's put it away too to be a key uh, um, asset uh, for uh, the discussions that we're gonna have with our current partners and our future partners
3: right and you mentioned um, telenovelas there the more traditional sort of programming that global would have made uh,
4: yeah we, we, I don't think we use that expression I think it's probably the way the world sees it. Sees it and perceives it. But in Latin America as a whole, telenovela has always been a, a very relevant. Content a very relevant genre for the for the especially for the broadcast business. But especially in Brazil, we've we've raised the bar of, of writing and and creating and producing telenovelas. novellas. Our talent novellas are Emmy award winners, and 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 we do uh, have very strong uh, uh, capabilities in terms of developing talent, whether it's on the script side or whether it's on the, the screen side. And actually, I, w- I would see I would say that not, not not to be pretentious, but I would say that the novellas that we we create are in a. Different content segment uh, that the overall uh, industry of television but it, But yes, it is a genre that has been uh, that has been around the world for the last fifty years. They are more like five, six, seven months uh, programming tool for mostly for linear broadcast. And we are adding to this the our unique capability of creating Brazilian shows uh, that can actually resonate around the world, whether it's a, a short drama series, where, whether it's series by seasons, and so forth. So, uh, we're actually expanding uh, and stretching our capability of creating and producing shows that can travel, whether it's, again, five, six, uh, 150 episode telenovela, on whether it's five, six, 12 season based um, series and miniseries.
3: And what for you, you said a series that can travel? What makes a Brazilian series that can travel?
4: I, I think in the past one of the one of the elements that we had was about the language, right? Speaking English was a mandate for something to travel, uh, or clo- or close to a mandate. Uh, nowadays, it's not about the language; it's about the story you tell, and and I think the Spanish and the German and the European producers have proven that so far. And and it's also about the niche uh, that you are actually communicating to. It's uh, it's a uh, I mean, one of our shows, uh, Desalma in Portuguese, it's like a science fiction and it definitely has its target and it has its fans. And and its fans, it's not about whether they live in Brazil or whether they speak Portuguese. It's about whether they resonate about the content. So uh, I think that's that's the possibility that the drama series uh, allows us. Not only there's no more frontiers about languages, as long as you are able to distribute, but you also can talk to specific groups and targets and fans uh of this kind of show of this kind of narrative of this kind of subject and they live anywhere so i think it, it really brings uh it, g- it gives perspective it gives world perspective to content that we are creating here in brazil but also if, if any any content producer is creating anywhere right now
3: so would you say that brazilian tv had a a particularly local flavor. It has. I think. I think.
4: I think the Brazilian TV has the local flavor of being Brazilians, right? I mean, historically, Brazil has been a, 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 more than a country; has been a society, has been a culture that played with the soft power. Let's put it the way: whether the music really represented, I think music, Brazilian music, has been very strong in terms of representing the, the Brazilian culture and the, and the way Brazilians relate to, to themselves and the way the Brazilians relate to the rest of the world. Uh, Understand in Brazil, it's a very hard question already because it's uh, over 200 million population, uh, uh, different backgrounds, whether it's I mean Indians or Africans or, or Europeans or whether it's Portuguese or Lebanese. So we are I mean, I live in Sao Paulo and, and, and you have a very big Japanese community, you have a very big Lebanese community, you have a very big Italian community, which makes this country very unique because it was a country built on top of other cultures or, or, or with very strong references from other cultures and the northeast of Brazil it's one thing and the southeast of Brazil it's the other thing. So I think one who's already in Brazil and wants to establish a dialogue, a conversation with, with Brazilians living here, it's already hard enough because even though there is a mass market, it's a scale market, but how do, I mean, what, what kind of, of conversation do you establish in, within all the, the, these differences? And once you are able to do this in Brazil, I think you, you get more credentials to do that internationally because they need to communicate to, to dialogue, to communicate to so many different people in Brazil from so many different backgrounds and living so many different life realities. It's what make our content even more um, international, even more, uh, it, it, it can travel because it needs to travel internally. That's a strong belief that we have. It's We're telling stories that talk about feelings, but feelings no matter where they uh, are located at but that the feelings that anyone from any culture from any background could feel and, and could be connected to it and it, and, the, and then it's how you do it i mean it's, it's it's i mean how you develop the script and how you write the, the the episodes how you direct the quality of the acting and and that's where i think global is very obsessed it's quality obsessed in, in, a, in a very positive sense of it we we aim to do very high content like the Americans, like the british I mean, our references are very high in terms of, of content creation and action.
3: You talked about the um, the rise in quality in general of Brazilian series. In recent years, there's been a kind of a rise in independent prodcos in Brazil that are now collaborating with international streamers, etc, etc. How has that changed your role as you try to um, make global more international? Brazil is producing more shows.
4: Not, not only because the traditional Brazilian players need more shows, but also because there are new entrants like Netflix and Amazon and HBO well, are producing local shows to me that doesn't disrupt what we're doing, but at the end of the day, we reinforces that not only Brazil—it's a—it's a by itself—it's a very big market for us who are here, and for those who are coming from the outside to make business in Brazil. But also that Brazil has a very strong creative community that can create shows that works here and works internationally. We speak Portuguese, which is a language that not many countries speak. But but I think we, in terms of making television, we create content that can resonate here and internationally and whether it's produced by global and global studios with global play which is our uh, ott platform the streaming business or whether it's producing by any other competitor with production houses in brazil but it's 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 far to say there is a very high profile creative community in brazil
3: and um for global internationally in 2021 what are some maybe untapped countries or territories that you would like to move into and increase your viewership in?
4: Yeah, I think I think we're very, very well established in terms of brand, in terms of content in, in Latin America, which is the market that mostly our telenovelas resonate very strong on the prime time. We are very, we are we a are relevant player in Portugal, but the, the Europe is the market to cross the border, let's put it away. And 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 the way we believe to do this, it's through partnerships. It's, it's, it's making partnerships local, market by market, local by by local whether it's spain italy uk germany and etc we see the right we see a very strong rise of the local players local streaming players like we own and operate global play which is our streaming business in brazil we know there is a, a couple in germany there is uh one or two in england there is one or two in spain so uh i think there will be we truly believe there will be more collaboration between content producers and content distributors to, uh, to create an alternative because because there is there is lots of content, very high quality content that also needs and deserves this, uh, let's say, global distribution, whether it's through a global platform or whether it's uh, through partnerships and, and sales or whatever, I mean, whatever business model that we <laughs> invent with the local distributors.
3: So when you, obviously, you want to move into these European territories and you want to expand global. Um, international purview, but you also want to not lose the original viewers of your series. So you want to create that's a new market while keeping the old one. How can you right. do all that?
4: naturally when we spend our creative capability and the number of content that we bring it to the market, they are not competing, but they are actually addressing different targets, different tar- targets in terms of eyeballs, different tar- targets in terms of platforms or, or distribution channels, whether it's, a, whether, whether it's a free TV, whether it's a pay TV, whether it's an s major S-pod or, or a niche s right? So there are many strong content producers around the world like to name a few ITV, BBC a couple from Germany and we could name Many from like Mediapro from Spain and et cetera, I think we have the same potential of expanding, of exporting, of actually traveling. That's the expression that I like with our content. Because if the language is no longer the barrier, it's about the quality of the content that you write and the way you actually produce. It's transferring my asset to someone else's strategy to become
3: their asset. And you touched on streaming there. How important is streaming to Globo's international future?
4: In, In Brazil, it's very strong. It's 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 a key part of our of our long-term strategy as a as a media player. Um, our major product, our major initiative, is branded Global Play, which is the number one local streaming player in Brazil. We've also launched for the Brazilians who live in, who live in the US Global Play US last year, and we, but we don't have plans to expand Global Play beyond the frontiers of Brazil, since Global Play is a, it's a Portuguese-driven streamer, like for Brazilians in, in Brazil, uh, Brazilian in the U.S. and and potentially for other countries in which we have Brazilians, but also being very customer-centric around the Brazilians. On the other hand, the content that Global Play commissions in Brazil to differentiate itself among the other competitors of the streaming war in Brazil allows us to believe that this content is also being able to travel, like Aruanas, which is a, a trailer around the Amazon like uh, uh, Unsold which is this like terror science fiction drama uh, so we are, we are producing very high-end drama series and I think Global has a unique position here which is being very strong on the, on the, on the streaming business in one hand in Brazil being very strong on the studio business in Brazil uniting these two assets right mm-hmm. so the competitive advantage that we have as both content producer and a streaming player is the fact that you unite we unite the content production with the distribution platform and the technology around it. So I I see very few players who really have this muscle. And um, you mentioned Global Play rolling out in the US. For Brazilians, right? For Brazilians. There is 1.7 million Brazilians living in the US. We still have and historically for the last 20 years. We have had our international network which was a premium service there through the distributors. And, And we launched Global Play one year ago. It was actually one year ago because we wanted to expand the experience that Brazilians living in the US could have with the Global Brand and the global content. So not only those who are already subscribing to the to our international channel can access uh, authenticated basis, but we are also doing a D two C strategy to actually gain more subscribers who are actually subscribing directly to Global Play. Companies
3: like Global have uh, sold their programs to streamers abroad, but now obviously you're rolling out Global Play. Are there still plans to sell shows to other streamers?
4: No, no, no. But we are rolling out Global Play only targeted at the Brazilian community outside of Brazil. So it's a very, it's a very, it's not even niche. It's the niche of the it's
3: niche. Like
4: the niche. Okay. So it, it doesn't jeopardize, and doesn't substitute. I think, I think, to be honest with you, the new content that we are producing at our studios, both for our broadcast business in Brazil, for our OTT business in Brazil, which is the drama series, it really resonates with the local streamers. We want to do business, we want to become preferred content partners, the local streamers outside of Brazil, like Atres Player or Join or RTL Now or the ones in UK just got out of my mind right now. But there is, I mean, the type of content and the quality of the content that we're producing for our streaming business in Brazil, it's really the same language that the streaming businesses outside of Brazil are doing. And the same thing, our, our positions team in Brazil, it's buying content from independent producers and streamers to complement their offering in Brazil.
3: What are your thoughts in general on the way that the TV industry is looking for the year ahead with everything that's happened?
4: I, I want to be optimistic. I think we need to be optimistic. You are in a country that is already taking the vaccine. So, we, I mean, as a, as a society, we need to approach 2021 on an optimistic basis. We need the world to, to regain confidence, to regain dialogue, uh, and we need business to, to flourish again. And and therefore we need, I mean the broadcast business is extremely important because it has it still has the ability to mobilize people. To, and it has a very strong, important role of, of informing, contribute to the education and to entertain people. And and it, even though it's it's going through hard times on on, on redefining its business models, we see players that are being able to evolve and try transform its businesses while maintaining the, the good core essence of the broadcast business. So I, I do believe that it's not one's against the other. It's not streaming against the, the linear. It's, it's linear and on demand. It's about the, the role of each of these media and, and the different business models and actually how they can collaborate, not only to serve consumer but also to flourish a, a very important creative and production industry.
0: Rafael Corianetto talking to ollie hammett that's all for this episode there'll be more from the podcast tomorrow but in the meantime stay safe and up to date with all the latest international tv industry news by following c21 online on mobile and social media my name's jonathan webdale thanks for listening